Welcome to Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. have occurred. One uh, major uh, change has been in the platforms involved in delivering persuasive messages. We now have the internet. We now have um, digital commerce. We now have social media. So now the, the way that people experience appeals of one sort or another has changed markedly. And one of the things I've tried to do in the new edition is to take into account those new platforms and examine how the principles of influence operate with uh, those platforms as the delivery systems, essentially. Um, so in each of the chapters, uh, each one uh, applies to a separate principle of influence. I talk about how uh, there are new technological uh, routes for using those principles and examine how they operate. Yeah, definitely. Um, that's definitely a big change. Um, there's also a lot of new content, a lot of new examples that you bring in. Um, but has anything changed over the years? Um, and by that, I mean, um, are there any case studies or research or anything from old editions of the book that maybe you've had to reconsider in this new edition? The biggest is I've added a seventh universal principle to the list of the six that were in all the previous editions. Uh, and that did very well in terms of, in my view, uh, uh, capturing the way that the influence process worked successfully by incorporating one or another of those principles into messages or requests or proposals for change. Uh, but um, it did uh, emerge uh, in the interim since the, the, the last edition that uh, there's a seventh principle, one I'm calling unity, the extent to which people believe that a communicator is not just like them, similar to them in tastes or preferences or choices of favorite movies or uh, or musical artists and so on, 
That works via the, the liking principle. We like people who are similar to us this way. This is similarities in identity, right? So if I were to say to my fellow group members, Michael is like us, that would have some effect, but it wouldn't have nearly the effect of saying, Michael is one of us. Michael is of us. He belongs to our in-group. And when you are a member of an in-group, everything is easier inside the influence process. We are more cooperative, we're more persuaded by, we're more helpful to, we're more trusting of individuals who share an important identity with us. There's definitely um, a lot of crossover between this new principle of unity and some of the other principles you talk about, um, specifically liking and social proof. So at what point did you sort of realize that this, these new concepts you're talking about couldn't just be added into those already existing principles and that you actually had to create this new principle? How did, how did that come about for you? Well, it was a combination of things, but one was a recognition that the emerging literature in behavioral science and persuasion science was implicating uh, shared identity as an important factor uh, to a much greater extent than it had been in the past. And taking that uh, cue, I began examining the evidence for the role of shared identity uh, in a variety of uh, research traditions that did uh, validate this idea that this is a standalone principle. It's not just some other version of similarity or something that makes all the fundamental principles, the six principles work a little better because if you add that on, it's kind of an accelerant. No, no, this was something this was something uh, that was a standalone fundamental principle of human behavior. Right? Um, one of the really fun things about reading the book is, you know, as much as it's great to hear you talking, um, there are also these readers reports mixed in throughout um, where you actually get to hear from people who have been reading the book over the years and how these principles have come to affect in their own lives. Um, so what's that been like for you interacting with this community of readers over the years that are you know, clearly responding very well to your work? I think it may be the best single decision I've ever made with regard to the subsequent editions of, of Influence. The first one was, of course, didn't have those uh, readers reports. There weren't any readers <laughs> at the time that I wrote it. Uh, but I invited people who had read it to write to me with examples of how one or another of the principles had worked for them or on them and to uh, describe the situation and, and, and uh, uh, what they had learned from it. Uh, over the years, they've given me a very rich uh, vein of examples, uh, personal examples, uh, real world uh, examples that I could share with other readers who would indeed share a recognition. Oh yeah, that's happened to me too in that kind of situation. And uh, it was a, a great uh, mechanism, a great device for bringing uh, the voices of those who were more similar to my readers uh, than 
my voice might have been. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely had those moments reading it where I was like, oh, I've, I've done that or I've had that done on me. Um, so I want to talk about, um, as you mentioned, you know, readers who both have been able to use the principles and have recognized the principles being used on them. Um, obviously, people are going to come to this book for many different reasons, um, but a lot of them, you know, will come to the book wanting to know how to influence people better. And you do talk a lot, spend a lot of time in the book talking about, you know, sort of using using this power for good, if you will. Um, so, what what would you say is the line between influence and manipulation? Yeah, this is an important question. It's one that's beset me from the outset because I realize that like anything else, persuasion could be used for good or ill. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's like dynamite. You can use it to blow up a bridge. You can use it to help build a bridge. But those things, and that was true of, uh, I think, uh, the the research that I was talking about, but not uniquely. I think there's no uh, important piece of information that can't be corrupted by some actor who has ill intent uh, for using it. And and so we can't fail to make information available to people if we try to think of only those things that could be used in a positive way, we'd be frozen into place. We'd make no contributions of new knowledge because anything can be misused. uh, for me, it, it did come down to the question you're asking, how do I differentiate between true influence and manipulation? And for me, it is whether the principle that is being employed, <clears throat> let's say it's the principle of scarcity, right, is true. It Does it naturally reside in the situation to the point that we are allowed to point to it. That's all. Just raise it to consciousness, not fabricated or counterfeited or uh, exaggerate its presence, its natural presence in the situation. If we do that, and the same with the other principles like authority opinion, what, what the experts are saying, if we simply raise it to consciousness in our audience, Uh, they become informed into assent rather than than deceived into assent. Um, I'll give you an example from my own uh, experience. A few years ago, I was in an electronics store and I was there for a different reason then I wound up being uh, uh, there for, it turned out, because I saw a television set uh, that was on sale, big screen TV, and I knew that it was very highly rated by Consumer Reports magazine, and I was kind of standing in front of it when a salesperson came up to me and he said, I see you're interested in this set at this price, I can see why, this is a great deal for this set. But I have to tell you, it's our last one. And I was already, as soon as he said that, I could feel myself becoming agitated. And then he said, and I just got a call from a woman who said she might be down to the store this afternoon to purchase it. 
I can tell you that I'm supposed to be the um, expert of influence. Mm-hmm. 20 minutes later, I was wheeling out of the shop with that set in my cart. Right? Now, here's the question relevant to the issue that you raised. Did that, did that salesperson manipulate me into buying this by using the scarcity principle? Or did he inform me into the purchase by telling me honestly, this is the last one and it might be gone? Well, I think that's the crucial question. And uh, if he did honestly inform me into assent, he was my ally in the process. He, he educated me into the choice, right? And um, suppose he had failed to tell me that it was the last one and that there was somebody coming down to purchase it that afternoon, perhaps. And I went home to think it over and then came back that evening to buy it. And he said, oh, sorry, it's gone. That was our last one. I would have been furious at him. What? What? It was your last one and you didn't tell me about the natural scarcity of this situation? You didn't inform me about it so I could take it into account in my choices? What's wrong with you, man? All right. Well, so what did, What was it? What did he do? Right. I went back the next day. Was the, was the spot on the shelf empty? He'd just gone to the back room, replaced it with one from the warehouse. Right. Mm-hmm. Turns out it was an empty shelf. He had informed me into influence, into yes. And I was grateful to him, so grateful that I went to my office and I wrote a five-star review of that shop and this particular guy. If it had been a trick, and by the way, the, the best buy stores uh, personnel were caught using exactly that trick, that deceptive trick, a few years ago. If he had done that, I would have gone to my office and written a very negative review. So that's the difference. Does the principle naturally exist there or is it counterfeited? Is it fabricated? That's the difference between um, manipulation and um, influence. Very, very well put. Um, so in other words, don't lie. Or, or, or even exaggerate the uh, representativeness of one of the principles in a particular situation. You Just point to it point to what is truly there at the at the level that it exists and you'll have an ally in the influence process as a communicator mm, absolutely um, so as you mentioned in the story you just told you are you know one of the biggest experts on influence you know about all these principles and yet you found yourself falling for this anyway whether or not it was you know fabricated or authentic um, and so, because you talk a lot in the book how a lot of these are these automatic responses we have, you call it the click and run. Um, so how, how do we sort of put a check on those natural impulses and maybe step back and think about it for a moment? Well, uh, at the end of every chapter of the book, I have a section on defense. Mm-hmm. How do we defend ourselves against these things that occur sometimes in an unthinking way and get us uh, 
uh, inclined toward a, a choice. Uh, let's take scarcity again. Uh, because what happens when, and it happened to me in that store, I immediately became um, agitated by the idea that when he was telling me it's the last one and I might lose it, right? I became, I became uh, kind of aroused uh, psychologically. To, and what I suggest in the book is to pay attention to the arousal. When you find yourself with this visceral upswing of, of arousal and tension and agitation in a particular situation where uh, that's the case, that should be your cue to step back from that, to calm yourself, the relative scarcity of it or not, but do you really want it, even if it, even if it is scarce? Is this something you want? Uh, and, and so we can always defend ourselves. And I use a different form of defense depending on each of the principles so that uh, readers of the book are equipped to deflect or reject these principles when they are used on us in unwelcome or undue ways. Is there anything um, that stands out for you? Because obviously you've learned a lot in this revision, but is there anything that stands out that you learned in doing this latest revision? Well, there, I, I, you know, there are a number of things like that, but there's one that's been especially uh, instructive to me, and it has to do with the liking process and the, um, the process of giving genuine compliments. And I, I uh, all my life, was reluctant to give genuine compliments to people around me. I don't know, something with the way I was raised. Uh, I was circumspect about that. And what I recognize, though, in reading the literature on compliments is how beneficial they can be to the, to the uh, goodwill between people. And so um, I have changed my route to um, interacting with people to be sure that I identify those praiseworthy things in my mind about somebody which I always did before, but I would recognize those and say to myself, oh, that was really a brilliant thing that Michael just said to myself. I would say it to myself and I lost all of that goodwill that would go from an honest compliment. So one of the things I do now is uh, to be sure that I always translate that message in my head, that commendable comment that I make in my head to, about some of that admirable comment to my tongue. So it goes, uh, it goes out. And what I found is two new ways to do that, that have uh, worked very well as a consequence. One, is to give those compliments behind people's backs so that you don't give them necessarily, if you're in a situation, let's say a meeting and you, you hear your boss say something brilliant, you can't raise your hand and say, boss, that was brilliant because 
right? It would, the people around you would uh, assign uh, ulterior motives to you and maybe even your boss would. You can't do it sometimes. But what you could do is to, during a coffee break, give that compliment to the boss's assistant who will bring it to the boss. We know that from social psychology. People love to be associated with good news in the eyes of their, um, uh, the people around them. Uh, and so uh, the, the assistant will surely say, you know, Michael, what Bob said about you, he said that comment you made was brilliant. You will love me for it, Michael. I will. <laughs> And assign no ulterior motive because I didn't give it to you. I mentioned it to your assistant. Okay, so that's one thing. Give compliments behind people's back. They will love you for it when they hear about it. The other thing is to give compliments to people that will spur them to live up to the reputation you've given them with the compliment. Right? So... That means, for example, uh, I take my cue from research that showed, for example, that if, if you call people on the phone and tell them, you know, we've been doing a, a survey in your neighborhood of people's views of altruism and charity and who are their most charitable neighbors. If you tell these people you've just called, your neighbors all say you're a very charitable person. Whether it's true or not, this was a study done at Yale University, and they randomly gave that, that compliment to people. A week later, when the United Way came to their doors, right, these people now gave more money than those who didn't get that phone call. Right? So people want to live up to the compliments that you give them. So the thing is, if you have somebody you would like to do more of something, and you catch them doing that one time, give them that compliment. Say, I like how the kind of person you are to be a genuine listener or to come fully prepared to a meeting or whatever it is, and they will live up to it. It happened to me. Um, when I was writing a, a, a different book, um, it's called Presuasion not what you put into a message, but what you put into the moment before you send your message to make, make people more uh, uh, attracted to it without ever hearing it. So that's a different book. But the first 5,000 copies of the book contain several printing errors. Uh, the pagination was wrong. The uh, Certain of the pages were uh, uh, printed in more lightly, the printing was, was more faint than other pages and so on. And these were 5,000 books that went out to, uh, to opinion leaders to get their uh, testimonials about it to the key bookstores around. Well, my editor called me and said, Bob, I've got some bad news. And he told me about the 5,000 books that were out there uh, in this suboptimal form. And here's what he said to me. He said, you know, Bob, I hate when this happens to good guys like you. 
And you know what I heard myself say to him? Ah, oh, Ben, it's okay. It happens to everybody. We all have these problems. He, I became the good guy. I lived up to the reputation, to the, to the compliment he gave me. So now I use this myself. Here's how I do it. There is a guy who is my, um, my, my newspaper uh, deliverer. He, 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 he rolls by my house and out of the window of his car, he tosses my morning newspaper onto my driveway. And about 75% of the time, he gets it in center enough of the driveway that it doesn't get wet from the watering systems on either side of the driveway. And in the past, he always left a little envelope in uh, one of the newspapers around the holidays, Christmas holidays, that was addressed to him. And it was designed for me to send him a check as a tip for his service during the year, which I always would do. But here's what I did last year. I included a little post-it note where I thanked him for his conscientiousness in getting my newspaper in the center of my driveway. In the past years, he did it about 75 to 80% of the time. This year, 100%. So these are the kind of things I'm learning and that I actually build into the book to help explicate what goes on within the liking process as um, as routed through uh, compliments, for example. All right, so let me, let me see if I can do this. Um, Bob, you've been giving such great answers so far, and I have one more question for you, and I know you're going to give just as good an answer to that one. How did I do? You did great. <laughs> and, and, and here's what you might also say. I know you have a short amount of time, and we're at the end of our time together, so... Um, if you want to uh, give as full an answer as possible, because that's what you're really good at doing, uh, <laughs> I really appreciate that. So, and, and, and right, I won't, I won't truncate the interview. <laughs> I'll, I'll go ahead and, and, and go as long as we, we need to. Okay, no, noted for next time. Um, so we asked this question at the end of all of our interviews, since this is primarily for teachers and their students, who was your favorite teacher? So it was a, a guy named Alan Barron. And I'll, I'll say favorite in, in because of the consequence that he had for me uh, as a teacher. He was my first introductory psychology professor. And I was a, 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 a freshman or sophomore. I didn't even know that I wanted uh, to major in psychology until this man's class. And it wasn't just the material, it's how he brought it alive, how he was energetic and uh, how he choreographed his lectures. He was all over the stage, he would gesture and he, he just made this stuff sing. And uh, I knew this is what I wanna be. I wanna be that guy. I want to be somebody who translates the academic literature into an understandable form 
that people who don't intend to be professional psychologists can take away and improve the outcomes of their lives. Well, several editions of Influence Later, um, I think it's safe to say that you have achieved that goal. <laughs> well, it's been a good, it, 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 it's been good to me. The book has been good to me, I have to say. I, the, it, it's been published in more languages than I could have sensibly imagined. I have a, a, a colleague, uh, a Polish colleague, uh, Professor uh, Wilhelmina Wosinska, who says, you know, Bob, your book, Influence, is so famous in Poland my students think you're dead, <laughs> which I thought was an affirming yet sobering commentary. So I thought I better write another edition. <laughs> <laughs> Just to let them know. Let them know I'm still kicking. <laughs> uh, I, I, did, I did notice there were, it felt like there were quite a few um, reader supports from Poland. I did, I did notice. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. I enjoyed it. Good, good. So long for now. Thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite third-party app for more episodes. And be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.